Hello, welcome to Science Shambles. Hope you're having a great week. Producer Trent here. On this week's episode, we have Dean Burnett and Stephanie Merritt. You'll no doubt know Dean from the Brain Yapping podcast and his blogs here on the Cosmic Shambles Network. And you'll probably know Stephanie from some of her books or perhaps uh, some of her reviews and articles she does for The Guardian or you might have seen her at the Hay Festival and stuff like that. This uh, episode was recorded live at the RI for Dean's book launch event for Why Your Parents Are Driving Her Up The Wall, which was presented by the Cosmic Shambles Network. Dean gave a talk and then that was followed by a in-conversation event with Dean and Stephanie and then some audience Q&A. That conversation and the audience Q&A is what this week's podcast is. So we hope you enjoy that. Dean's book is available now, should mention that, as well as lots of upcoming Cosmic Shambles events. Signals, uh, the tour for Signals starts this week uh, on Wednesday night. The first show is in Newcastle, cosmicshambles.com slash signals will give you all the dates for that. Chaos of Delight with Robin Ince is on tour throughout November. Lots of dates there in Glasgow and Edinburgh and Newcastle and Cambridge and Penzance and Exeter. Lots of places we're going with that show, so check that out. Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People on sale for both London at King's Place and the Lowry in Salford. We've added lots of new names to the bill in the past few weeks. People like Liz Bonin and Marco and Femi and Grace Petrie, Susie Gage and lots of others. Nine uh, Cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons details for that. And Robin and Brian Cox's Compendium of Reason at Hammersmith Apollo. There are very few tickets left for that now, December 6th. Make sure you go and get tickets for that as well. Uh, secret lineup, as always, for the Hammersmith show. And uh, I promise you, it is a belter lineup, as always, for our show there. Uh, and I should mention the Norwich Science Festival as well at the end of October. Lots of incredible events going on at that festival, including uh, Signals and a talk by Lucy Green and a talk by Chris Lintott and Universe of Music, all being presented by the Cosmic Shambles Network. So go along and check out those shows. Uh, the Norwich Science Festival website has all those details. And final reminder, of course, to support everything we do on Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Your pledges on there is what keeps everything going. Thank you very much to those of you who do support us there. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks very much for sharing Science Shambles on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Reddit and, and Friends Reunited, whatever you use. Enough of me. On to the episode. Here is Stephanie and Dean at the R.I. Okay, <laughs> great. Um, thank you, Dean. That was really a, a kind of whistle-stop yes. um, overview of this really um, fascinating book, which I have loved because, first of all, I mean, I would have loved to have had this when I was a teenager because yeah. what it does, um, and I, d I do want to ask you about the neuroscience in of more course, detail, yes. which I'm singularly unqualified to, <laughs> to talk about, but you are, so you can, you can tell us about it. But it's just, it shines a light on why we behave in the way we do, why teenagers behave in the way that they do, um, on a really kind of nuts and bolts level about the working mm. of the brain, which, you know, when I was a teenager and going through all these kind of ups and downs, mood swings, and, all, and thinking that that was some sort of 
character flaw, as you know, as, a, as our parents often make us feel that it is. Um, to have been able to say, no, this is normal, and I, I react like this because my brain is doing this, uh, is such a useful resource. And I, I also say this as, um, as the parent of a teenager who <laughs> recognises so many arguments that you're kind of <laughs> offering as case studies here. So um, I wanted to start by asking you about the neuroscience that kind of underpins the book and whether it's quite recent research. Because I know in your acknowledgements you credit Sarah Jane Blakemore, mm. who's recently won... Was it the Welcome Prize? She I'll, won for her I'll, I'll say yes. book about, I think it was the Welcome <coughs> Prize, the book about teenage brains and why teenagers behave mm. the way they do. And is this quite new research that, we're, that you're drawing on and that, that we're only now beginning to have a clearer understanding of how different teenage brains are and, and why they are the way mm. they are? Well, it, it, it technically, if you want to go on a grand scheme, we're in the Royal Institution, so I guess you know, we would say in terms of science as a whole, all neuroscience research is relatively quite new because we only, we only had the tools to look at it for the past 50 years or so. I mean, before then, neuroscience was largely the reserve of battlefield medics going, look, his brain's hanging out. Why don't we poke it? And you know, that's not really, you can't really do that in the lab. They, they frown <laughs> on that. <laughs> I'm going to crush your skull for a second. I hope you don't mind. What? Bang. And... So like, you know, a lot of it's really quite new, but uh, things like uh, fMRI scanning, like brain imaging technology, that's like a lot of the past three or four decades, late 90s I came in. Yeah. So, so that, I mean, that, that's still being refined as well. So yeah, a lot of it is, it just is new by default. Like I said about the smartphone thing in that, you know, these have only been around 15, 20 years, maybe if we're being completely on the outside of mobile phones. Whereas the ability to look at the human brain and see what's going on inside it in a living, thinking, breathing person, that's kind of very new as well, so... Well, just in terms of those slides that you were showing us with the kind yeah. of neural connections of children at different ages, I mean, mm. the, this is all kind of yeah. Re yeah, that's relatively... Like, you know, yes, it's all relatively, like, we're talking, like, past 20, 30 years, yeah. you say, like, I mean, I don't like to rely on anything from, like, pre-2000 in my own research because that's long enough for someone else to go, hang on a minute, that's wrong. Yeah. And so I've gotten that window before everyone... Tells me I'm wrong, you know, because like anything from the 80s and 90s, people have gone, they've tried to, tried to study it again since, because that, that didn't work at all. I said, oh, sorry. I thought, well, I'll get this out now before anyone does that to me. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> really. But just in terms of um, understanding how, how, why the brain doesn't, what you were saying earlier about um, the evolutionary advantages mm. of teenagers behaving in the way that they do. Um, I mean, how does that change the way, or should that change the way that we? regard how we parent and how we kind of set up our education system to, to mm. better make use of the way that teenagers are naturally behaving. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for that. Like I said, there's those schools in America which are starting yeah. later because it's acknowledged that teenagers need, need more sleep because like, their brain's doing more stuff and they need more downtime to recover from that. So that's proven positive results. And I think you know, there has been like, well, a lot of things whereby <coughs> the way we structure modern society isn't helpful towards like the teenagers but I mentioned the GCSE thing like at a time when you're not getting enough sleep and you know, your brain's going through all these intense emotional experiences that's when you said also now you've got to study really hard as well for things that will affect your entire life that's 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 unfair that's, that's unhelpful and it's not really you know it, it ideally we do it either much later in their life but you know that's not how society's evolved like, it's like I don't think it was a conscious decision I don't think the world leaders got together and said Teens, let's mess them up, because well, maybe they did do that, given what's going on right now. That's, uh, that's not a wild conclusion. But you know, again, inconsistency too. Like I mentioned, all sex in this country, the age of consent is 16. You can legally have sex with a willing partner at age 16. But anything which shows sex, you have to be 18 to watch it. So you can have sex, but you can't see it until you're 18, which seems like there's two years there where it's going to be very confusing. 
for everyone involved. So, you know, they, yeah, so I think we could do a lot more to take that stuff into account and say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Let's not do that, or that's unhelpful. Let's, again, I know it takes a lot more effort and time and pressure than yeah. that, but I think there's something to be said for that, yeah. But I think part of that is having the tools to be able to understand the generational differences, which, you know, up until quite recently we, we mm. didn't have. And just in terms of... Um, there's a, uh, what you're saying um, in the book about teenagers seeking out things that are more fun and instantly rewarding. And, mm. and we now, I think every parent kind of has probably had that argument with a teenager of, you know, you, there's homework to do. Why are you going out with your friends again? Or why are you watching that again when mm. you should be, you know, you know you've got this stuff to do? Um, and maybe just having a better understanding of really basic stuff like how that reward system works in a teenage brain yeah. would help us to kind of... Yeah, definitely. I, mean, it, it, I think it's not just a teen thing. A lot of adults have that as well. Oh, like all yeah. delayed gratification <laughs> thing. It's like, well, I want that now. If I don't have that, I'll, I'll be, I'll be sad. So I'll have it now. And that, no, people don't tend to th always think long term. It's just, it's just harder to do in adolescence because those parts of your brain are saying now, now, cake, now, now, cake, or whatever. Um, they are far more noisy in your head rather than you know, the part which says, Shh, be quiet, busy, exams, the research, reading, like, because it is, you know. It, Human brain generally has a sort of an effort and reward assessment system whereby you're given a task in front of you and you can sort of see, well, it'll take this much effort for this much reward. Can I be bothered? And a lot of people, like, it, it differs from person to person. Some people just generally don't like putting effort in at all. Some people are workaholics. They just like doing anything. But when the reward is very intangible and long-term, like exams are a perfect example. If you work hard, do these exams, you will... Um, you'll pass, and then some point in your life in the, in the future, that might help, I don't know. That's not really a persuasive argument, is it? You know, most people wouldn't sit down for that if they weren't made to. It's, 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 a, it's a tricky one to sell. And, you know, but how would you get around that? How would you sort of work that into more society? I guess you could, you know, if there was a shorter time between, okay, exams are this week, you get your marks next week, that would maybe help, but that would require a much more radical overhaul of infrastructure, which I don't think is particularly feasible right now. And so, yeah, there are, there are options of how to go about it, but I think a lot of them are quite tricky, given that we have arrived at this point with our society, and a lot of it isn't really, you know, it's not, easy, it's not going to be easy to change things to help yeah. the typical teen, even though that would be the ideal solution. Just it's going to be, a, it'll be quite an uphill struggle. Well, because it, it pops up quite regularly, doesn't it? That that um, the research that has shown that if the school day were timed differently for mm. teenagers, you'd actually get better better results. But the the idea of overhauling that completely, yeah, is just such a huge task. Um, but on a on a much smaller scale, on a kind of more <laughs> personal level. Um, what you've done in the book is kind of at the end of each chapter, that ha each of your themed chapters, you've given a little um, summary of actually how uh, people can improve their relationships. And, and obviously mm. because this book is pitched at teenagers, it's quite cleverly done because you've actually, uh, you've sort of put the onus on them to say, mm. look, you know, your poor parents feel sorry for them. They <laughs> don't really get any of this. Their brains <laughs> are so fixed. They can't yeah. think, um, yeah. uh, you know, they can't have, n you know, new ways of thinking. So you've offered little w solutions and possible ways of reducing that conflict mm. that the teenagers can feel they're kind of having some agency in that. Yeah, well, I think that's an important part because like, I remember being a teen and like not having any real say in how my life went and mm. how it worked and... I think, well, I'd like to do this, but you can't. You're not old enough. Well, okay, when will I be old enough? When you're too old. Oh, that's handy. And it's 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 distracting. It's it's upsetting. It's you know, it's frustrating. And 
no, if I had some, any sort of modicum of control of your own life can feel a lot better, which I think is why social media becomes so intoxicating, well, even for adults now, but especially for teens, because you have control over how you come across, who you talk to, how you sound. You can, like, take the selfie 50 times, like, this is how I want to look today, and you can present yourself as this sort of person. You have a lot more control of your self-image, which is why most people find social media so much more pleasant or more, more like, compelling, because... Like a face-to-face -face interaction with someone is always a risk. There's always effort involved. You have to think in real time. You have to give the best impression of yourself whilst thinking about what to say next. And the whole time your fly is undone, you think, oh, well, that, that, that's that interview ruined. And <laughs> there are plenty of ways in which to, you know, it can go wrong. Whereas online, you have a lot more control. It's not, you know, you have, you can, you fix how you come across, how you look, how you present yourself. That's a lot more reassuring. And you give, give you the sense of control and agency in your own life, like you say. So. Yeah, so anything which can offer that, I find, I, I think I would have found quite tempting and quite reassuring just to be able, be able to say, yeah, well, I can do this. It's something I can do. I can, I, I'm not a complete prisoner in my own existence. I can, I can do this. I can say something. I can make this change in my own personal situation, and maybe that will help. I, mean, I, I will say a lot of the stuff I said, it's, it's suggestions. I'm, I'm not, I, I'm sort of a very, <coughs> a very sort of vocally or very openly Concerned, probably a bit too strong a word, but very sort of wary of the self-help industry. The sort of the idea that you can one person can write a book which ten thousand people could read, and the same solutions will apply to each of them equally. Like, yes, I can fix your problems. I never met you. I don't know you. All I know is you bought a book. And but still, I'm going to fix your life. And that, to me, I find people like answers. They want someone else to say, mm. please fix this. But I find that uh, sort of you know, it's 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 close too close to dishonesty for me. So that's one something I find a little bit. Weary. So I, I like to pr give suggestions, but not sort of say, this will work. Because I don't know that. I don't know the relationship between has with their parent. It might be a very good relationship. It might be a very bad one. Your parent might be very open to this sort of thing. They might be very closed off to like, no, no, I don't want... You're younger than me. You can't tell me what to do. And that's, no, each, each, each person's individual. And so these are suggestions rather than full-on instructions that this will help. So I always like to keep that in mind, even though it does cost me some sales. <laughs> Was it a challenge in um, writing this? Because this is your first book for teenagers. Mm. And did you have to think very carefully about what kind of style was going to get across in mm. the most effective way? Because I, I think that's one of the hardest things about talking to teenagers is that you, you make a joke. I mean, I'm speaking from personal experience. You make a joke and it just lands. Like, and yeah, you thought, oh, yeah, I, I thought balloon, that was... Yeah. Particularly yeah. if you do it in front of your child's friends. And then they're just like, oh, mum, just don't yeah. be funny. Just don't be funny. And I remember at, you know, going to events where my son has stopped me at the door and said, don't try to be funny, yeah. um, which is one of the hardest, yeah. you know, to, to find that line. And obviously, you've got a background in comedy as well as science. Mm. So what was the challenge in writing for an audience yeah, you know, that you maybe hadn't written for before? It's a tricky one. And like, I, I do, I've seen parents try it. And they say it is always... I, mean, I feel bad for them when they try it, let alone if I was the parent. Like I was... I referenced one time I was in the supermarket, it's in the book, I mentioned, I was just like picking up some bits and I saw some mother with a trolley with the two teens and she goes, hey, kids, chicken nuggets, hashtag cool, yeah? Then, ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord, <laughs> that's a run. I, I can't be near the blast zone of this. That was awful. So that was, you know, it, that sort of stuff, like, it comes across as, I think it's, like, there's a lot of research which shows like when someone does make a joke which goes badly, it does pr prompt an, an aggressive response because... <laughs> I guess another way in which we are wired, because someone using humour, it's an attempt to relate to you. So say, like, I think you like this, you'll find this funny, because I want to create this bond. 
But you know, if it works, fine. It's good. It's a very good social cement. Like humor is a huge part of human interaction and of making things and social cohesion. It's really well established. We are a very humorous species in that respect. But when it goes badly, then it has correspondingly bad outcomes. So when someone makes a joke at you which lands like a lead balloon, they think, so you thought that I would think that was funny. So obviously you think little of me. You tried to manipulate me and failed. I hate you. And <laughs> that is sort of you know, that's why. Like bad comedians get so much more bad flack than bad musicians, or like something like oh, not not my thing, but I hate that comedian guy. So there's that already there, and when you're, a, you know, so when you're a teenager, you're far more sensitive to that because like, your emotional responses are far more uh, attuned to social stimulation, stimulation like that. So a good joke will make you laugh harder, whereas a bad joke will make you go. Mm. But it's it's really hard to pitch because I, I think everything I've read aimed at teens and younger or older children does intense. Pretty much it always comes across as. I think accidentally patronizing is the way to say it. Like, hi, kids. We all love brains, don't we? Oh, no. <laughs> I did until you said that. No, I don't. Now I, I really resent them. <laughs> like, so I remember the efforts of it in school, and it was, I meant to be talking on about this, but um, we have the Eisteddfod in Wales, like the sort of like the annual contest of arts and culture and stuff. And we always like do things like an essay contest and things. And one time they saw, like, this year we're having a rap contest. Because, yeah, you know, working class white Wales, that's where rap really lives. <laughs> and... Like, so, like, three different houses are like, so like, you all have to do a rap about why drugs are bad. Like, oh, God, really? That's so. <laughs> so, this kid on stage, like, sort of, he hasn't left the valley in his life going, don't do drugs. Drugs can kill. Smoke can, dope can make you ill. <laughs> and so, like, like 14 watches going, I mean, I, I don't want to die right now, but if I did, it wouldn't be the worst thing. Because <laughs> this is just appalling. <laughs> And I teach the time, like, you like, you like rap, don't you? That's the thing you like. And it comes across as so. <laughs> agonizing to, to be part of the whole accidental embarrassment. So I really want to avoid that. But, you know, there's also, because the age range, like 11 to 16, those are very different ages, and it's very hard to kind of get that across. But I guess I sort of try to start off a bit, you know, it starts off a little bit TV presenter. Hi, guys! Let's come in, and then it's sort of, oh, let's, let's, let's avoid that for now. Because like I, I do think, uh, when it gets the mental health stuff, that's not yeah. something you should introduce much levity into. I mean, a few, like, punch the attention is quite good, but it's it's proper stuff. You shouldn't say, <laughs> depression, what's that all about? Because it's about a lot of stuff. And that's important to bear in mind. So yeah, I, I, I try to avoid the whole CBB's presenter vibe, but also not make it too dry academic lecture thing. I think my first book, The Age of Brain, is actually used in a lot of A-level psychology courses. So I think my style seems to be accidentally uh, applicable to teens anyway. So that's yeah. um, my general default assumption is everyone who's reading my stuff is at least as smart as me. Just doesn't know the stuff I know, so I'm trying to say it. You know, trying to say the old stuff I know, but in ways which don't use jargon, and that's basically my default assumption. I think it works most age ranges, really. So so yeah. far, so good. No, no one sacked me yet. I'm not... Hello, we interrupt your current podcast listening to give you an exciting announcement about the 17th of May, 2020, where we will be doing another show at the Royal Albert Hall. Some of you might remember we did a show, Space Shambles, with uh, Rusty Schweikart from Apollo 9 and Chris Hadfield and Public Service Broadcasting and Stuart Lee and Helen Chersky and various others and Lucy Green as well. And this time, as opposed to going into space, we're going to go deep into the ocean for a sea shambles. We have many guests confirmed, but most of them we're not going to announce yet. So for the time being, I can merely tell you that I will be there, Steve Baxter will be there and Helen Chersky will be there uh, now go to our website cosmicshambles.com where every now and again we will tell you more exciting news about Sea Shambles. We now return you to your programme. Well, 
let's go back to the, the mental health stuff, because one of the things that you say in the book is that um, when you're addressing the teenage reader, you're, you say, you know, you are probably more at home talking about this stuff than your parents, mm. because 20, 30 years ago, um, it, it, there was still a huge stigma about talking about mental yeah. health. Now, uh, there's a lot of books out there that, you know, address that kind of thing. There's a lot of newspaper columns, people you'll read about it in, you know, in quite mainstream um, press. And and obviously there's a lot online that, that teenagers can mm. find for good and for, and for bad. So do you think that there's a, a, a much more open conversation among the age range that you're talking to here and that, that they are, you know, that they're more comfortable discussing things like mm. mental health and more familiar with those terms? It does seem to be. Like, I know I've <clears throat> got a lot of teens who will say, like, someone's having, oh, they're having a bad day. Like, they mean, like, someone's having a bit of a mental, mentally low day or, like, and they, they don't see that as anything unusual. It's just a thing that happens. Um, I've got a lot of teens, like, like, my work, and I follow them back, and they, uh, like, a lot of teen mental health campaigners. So clearly it's not something a lot of teenagers are afraid of in terms of just discussing it openly. I think the, the, the discussion, as many people call it, in the wider world has moved on a lot since, like, from the last 20 years, which is great. Obviously, it's really helpful. But there are still problems. You know, say, like, uh, you know, there are certain groups and communities who you know, fetishize it is the wrong word, but it becomes a part of your identity. I am the mental health person, so, like, I am I'm an authority on this, and I will tell you how it works, And but it differs from mm. person to person. I interviewed someone about them. Like, they have uh, anxiety with panic attacks, and they really hate articles which describe what a panic attack is like, because like, for me, it's never like that. It's always far more, you know, it's just different. So someone saying, this is what a panic attack feels like. It's like going down a whitewater rapid dressed in a ballerina's outfit and you've got piranhas. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm an experienced one. But, but like they, they resent that. They resent someone else taking their, you know, I got panic attacks. You don't speak for me. This is, I think the mental health community is, shouldn't be viewed as <clears throat> like a very set specific group of people. It's, it's all of us, essentially. So, yeah, there is a discussion about it and there are, you know, and a lot of people... There is a certain element of bandwagoning too, because like a lot of Instagram celebrities say, "No, having a down day today, guys, but uh, tomorrow I'll be back to my fabulous lifestyle with my yachts and my gold jet." That doesn't sound like you know. You're, I'm not sure you're entirely. You're not really selling the reality of it here, and and so there are you know, the discussion is improved, but there's still lots of issues around it. But I do think like the you know, modern day teens are far more literate about mental health than previous generations, which I think is both really good for them, but also kind of unhelpful when your parents are far more um, inexperienced with it. It's like you know, a lot of parents are very, very borderline terrified of giving their teens antidepressants because they go, oh, no, that, that, that messes up your brain chemistry. They like, can't have that. Well, again, you could argue that yes, it does interfere with brain chemistry, but not as much as having depression does because like, so we can't give them medication because that might stunt their development. So we'll just leave them depressed for months. That's going to make it worse. So like, there are, you know... It, I think parents are often playing catch-up, and that can be a bit of an issue in terms of how to get things sorted out. One good thing about um, the adolescent brain being as sort of robust and flexible as it is, like mental health problems tend to respond well to interventions and treatments and therapies and stuff. So, you know, when your brain isn't as you know, solidly fixed yet, it's actually the best time to do something about it. So, yeah, but mm. I think there, are, there is a lot more savvy about mental health stuff, but there's still lots of you know, there's lots of potholes in that particular. Yeah. The area there. <clears throat> so, I mean, I mean, something like this, which is actually encouraging teenagers to talk to their parents about mm. what what might be going on with them, but also that explains that it isn't 
you know, just sort of random mood swings, that there are actually mm. sort of solid biological reasons why, you know, you're experiencing these mood swings and that therefore if parents and teenagers can both be more understanding. Mm. I think one of the greatest revelations for me in this book was this idea that, that the emotional centre of the brain develops very quickly, but then mm. the, the kind of rational self-control part takes so much longer, which is why, you know, anybody who's got frustrated with their teenager <laughs> for not being able to kind of rein yeah. themselves in a bit better... Um, you know that suddenly that makes perfect sense, and it I think it makes it a lot easier to try to be understanding. Yeah, and I did ask someone asked me, um, which is a very good question. If you know, it's typical for your adolescent brain to experience these mood swings, which are quite intense compared to adult ones, so like you know, they experience extremes of emotion all the time. How do you tell the difference between that and you know, actual mental health problems? And it's not so much about the severity of the moods they experience or like the, the swings. It's when it's unchanging. And that actually applies to a lot of people. Like We experience different moods all the time. We should experience the full range of emotions in order to have good emotional competence, as they say. It's, it's important for the brain to be able to go through the full cycle of all the things it's capable of so we can process it better and recognise it. But when a mood, gets, when a mood becomes fixed, because a lot of times depression isn't necessarily in a really low, deep, sad mood. It's about having like no mood, no affect, and being unable to change it for weeks and months on end. And that's when you get sort of like, OK, so you're meant to be experiencing intense moods, but it's, um, you haven't experienced anything different for like a few weeks. And that's, that, that's when you can say, okay, this isn't necessarily what's meant to be happening because the brain is a very flexible, flexible and diverse organ. And one of the newer theories of how depression and things like that works is when it becomes, when it loses that flexibility, when it becomes like, it loses neuroplasticity. So you become locked in a certain mental state. Mm. And that's where, it's like, actually, no, maybe that's the problem. Not the, not, not, not the bad mood, it's the fact that it's not changing is what the problem is. So if when you're in the same mood, mental state for like, weeks and months on end, that's when he's like, oh, okay, maybe we need some help here, because that's probably you know, something, to, something to be wary of. Yeah. And let's go back to the, um, the tech stuff, because as you mentioned earlier, this is you know, one of the biggest divides for mm. at the time that we are now, one of the biggest divisions between teenagers and their parents is the way that we regard um, the online world and, and social media in particular, which um, parents, mm. you know, often fail to understand the pull of that and and perhaps overemphasize the dangers of it. And you've been very even-handed in the book, in the mm. chapter on, on <laughs> tech stuff, um, in suggesting that, you know, perhaps parents are partly to blame for overestimating the dangers and teenagers for underestimating the dangers. But they, I think there is a very real anxiety about n not knowing what your kids are looking at mm. online and, and the <coughs> fact that... Um, you know, there is content out there that could be Absolutely, extremely yeah. harmful. Yeah. And, and you don't really touch on that in the book and in depth. And I wondered if you could say a little bit more about how, what parents can do perhaps to, to make sure that their kids are staying safe online. And yeah, well, I think that's because that's almost like a separate issue in terms of the tech is like the conduit for it happening. But uh, that's not necessarily like tech is responsible for that. Because I make the example of if someone is, um, you know, addicted to online gambling, like online casinos, is that a gambling problem or is that an internet, uh, internet addiction? Like, uh, like yeah. If someone is going to an actual casino, we wouldn't call that a building addiction because it's in a building, but it doesn't really... It just <laughs> happens to be there. That's just how, how it's set up. So, so things like you know, ex extreme sexual content, extreme violent content, extreme ideological content, religious and political and racism stuff, that sort of... Um, I guess tech has opened these doors, but that stuff is there. Someone has produced that. It's not the technology which is creating that thing. That is... 
something which teens are able to access now because of technology, but arguably it was always sort of there, and that's something which is, um, again, not just a teen thing, lots of adults, like even older adults are very swayed by online ideolo ideological things. Mm. Um, yeah, the, it's tricky for like, parents to say, well, what are you doing online? I don't know. That's another reason why it causes such conflict, because it really upsets the power dynamic, because obviously the parent's supposed to be in charge of the house. The teenager knows all the technology works. And then, go to your room, you're grounded. Also, how do I, how do I reset the router? They're like, <laughs> I'm not telling you. <laughs> it does sort of make it a little bit tricky to maintain authority there. Um, again, that's, I would argue that's probably more of a technical question than a sort of neuroscientific one, because I can sort of say, you know, any sort of teen who's more savvy than their parents will probably find a workaround to what, what they've got, you know, any sort of parent blockers and stuff, because, you know, it, once you've used all the time. Yeah, I suppose, I mean, you know, where it, where it intersects with um, mental health issues, but, um, for example, I mean, we will all have read news stories about teenagers who have self-harmed or, or mm. killed themselves as a result of, well, maybe not as a result of, but having looked at a lot of content online that is encouraging and, and feeding mm. those kind of ideas. And it, it, um, there's obviously been a lot written about, you know, where tech and mental health intersect and, and why teenagers are particularly vulnerable to it. And do you think that some of that is over, that it is exaggerated or that... Um, I think uh, <coughs> some more honest like, uh, appraisal of the situation when you're younger would be more helpful as in, like, this stuff is there. If you go online, you will be able to find hardcore things of the sexual, little ideological nature. I think it's when, like, a lot of parents, like, say, like I mentioned, like, when sex, edu sex, sex education or uh, LGBTI stuff is taught in schools, there's so many parents who suddenly protest, oh, we can't have this, we can't corrupt our fragile young minds, and, but then that's sort of like, well, then that's leaving them completely at the mercy of stuff out there, so, like, two or three Google yeah. searches, and they're suddenly, oh, what on earth is this? And that's, that makes it all the more vivid, so... I think maybe a more honest approach to this sort of thing, saying this is, this is how it is, this is how the technology works, you can access this stuff if you want it, uh, but you shouldn't because it will cause you harm. And I think a more honest approach would be more useful, but mm. again, that, you know, parents and their teens have different ideas about how that sort of works. So again, that is a tricky one, which I can't offer any concrete solutions yeah. to, and uh, if anyone wants to call me on that, happy to. But, but I mean, so much of this comes down to, uh, and, and really on, on all the topics that you're talking about, so much of it comes down to trying to have more open and understanding conversations between <clears> parents and children and, and using the information that we now have about why we think differently to try and be more understanding of each other's point of view. And that's obviously that's a big ask for teenagers, but also mm. for adults yeah, as well, so, to, yeah. to ask to, that you're asking parents to stop and consider why your teenager behaves like this. It's not because they're being difficult, and mm, yeah. um, sometimes yeah. it is. But, you know, <laughs> but, but it, that it's, it's really about sort of trying to, mm. to understand each other and, and just talk about things, I guess. Yeah, just like more awareness, I think. Like that's one reason, like most of what I've written is, well, we, we think this is how the brain works based on the current science. If people knew yeah. this, it would be perhaps a lot more reassuring to think, oh, that's what's happening. Like my first mm. book was all about the things the brain does wrong. The most common response I, I got was people going, oh, that's why that happens. And it's sort of, it's reassuring to know that. It's saying, oh, I'm not weird. I'm not broken. I'm just, oh, that, that's just how our weird brains work. Yeah. So you know, it's, 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 it's helpful to know that. As in like, oh, my team's not you know, a psychopath, they are actually just, yeah. just being, behaving like this because that is how, how, it, how, how, it, just how humans have evolved. And that's, you know, it, it takes some pressure off, perhaps, thinking, yeah. I'm, I'm not doing anything wrong, they're not doing anything wrong, just, oh, that's just the situation. Yeah, you know, no, I do yeah. think it, I mean, it's so enlightening to, to read this stuff because 
for so long, so so much of this stuff has been framed as a kind of, you know, these are moral failings. If you behave like this, it's because you're, you know, you've mm. got a character flaw. And actually, the relief of kind of being able to think, oh, it's not, it's not me, it's not my yeah. teenager, it's not. Oh. Yeah, and I think that's something to bond out. Because like, yeah. of the way, because their brains are generally working differently, teenagers are not children, they're not adults, they are teenagers, adolescents, and they should have their own sort of classification as a result of that. But I think yeah. far too often they're expected to have childlike restrictions and behave in adult ways, which yeah. doesn't help either and, side. And so. adult judgment as well. Yeah, and, that's yeah. It, yeah. Um, and I think that's perhaps one of the things that happens online is that we're expecting teenagers to exercise adult judgment over things that they don't have the mm. maturity to, to, um, to understand. Yet, so, yeah. 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 Um, we're going to open it up to audience oh, okay. questions now. So um, if anybody's got... Do we have a microphone? Yeah. yeah, they yeah. Did you, there's a lady down the front. If you yeah. could hang on for the mic because it's being recorded. That would yes. be great. <laughs> Can you offer a neuroscience explanation for why teens find their parents so incredibly embarrassing? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, I can offer them. I'm not sure you'll take it, but it's I mean, obviously to do with the thing about you know when you're when you're an adolescent. That's when you're trying to form your own identity. Like, right, who am I now? And maybe you don't think about it in conscious terms. But that's what your brain's doing. So, so what? How do I see the world? What's what's happening here? I need to form new relationships with my peers, my friends, and no, I need to be seen as successful and you know, we're, we're a social hierarchy species. So when you're a teen, you're far more sensitive to you know, forming like, new connections and bonds and social acceptance. And your parents are, they've gone from being like, you know, the providers and like the center of your world to a restricted factor or like gatekeepers or like oh, them still, you know, they're a hindrance on what you want to do because that's just how it works. And they have to be, that's, that's fair. So when like you're, um, you're with your with your friends. So if you want to be seen as an independent person, as a sort of cool person, and like yeah, I am, I'm in control. I'm independent. That is something the brain responds to really well, especially when you present that image of authority or like I have status. I have, uh, I have, I have upper status. I am cool. I am, you know, I'm an authority. I'm, I'm an alpha, or however you want to phrase it. So the moment your parents even experience, are even there, they undermine that. Saying, yeah, I'm, I'm cool, independent. Also, I live with them. That's um, <laughs> it's a hard sell, you know. So if your parents, oh no, they're talking about things. And that's so. Again, it also comes down to the whole um, different persona thing. So when you're with your friends out in, out in public, you want to be this person. Like, I want to be like this. Is how I, I saw I behave on my friends. How I behave on my my peer group. And your parents are there, and then like they, they I behave differently around them. But then my friends are here. So like, oh, oh, oh it's like two. It's like two separate programs trying to operate in your head. So like, say if you're watching like a gritty crime drama, then Bart Simpson appears. Like, that's wrong. What's what's going on there? That's ridiculous. That's that's not how it works. And I think teens experience all the time as well. When you go out in the public with your friends and then a teacher appears, like, oh, no, 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 you don't, you don't belong here. You sleep in cupboards in the school. That's where you sleep. You don't, you don't exist in the outside world. You're a teacher. Ugh. I've had that once. One of the teachers came to my pub once, which I thought was a completely violation of my privacy, <laughs> <laughs> even though it is literally a public house. So that, you know, it's, it's stuff like that. Like you're very sensitive to being accepted and being like, uh, you know, Teenagers being very, very sensitive to novelty and to being accepted for showing a sense of control, showing a sense of you know, composure and sort of just being an independent person. And just the very presence of a parent in a social context will undermine that. So anything they do to contribute to the situation will make it worse. And therefore they become embarrassing. Like teenagers don't like to admit they have parents. Like they want to be separate individuals on an instinctive level and just parents being there will undermine that. And again, not their fault at all. They're just being their parent they've always been. But... No, the brain sort of suddenly rejigged now, thinking, oh, I wish they would 
they. I wish they were just more of a silent partner in my life. But it doesn't work that way. Does anybody else? Yeah, there's a... She's, she, does, she doesn't want you to ask a question. Yeah, okay. Don't ask any questions. <laughs> yeah. So uh, just following on, following on from that question regarding yeah. the social brain, I think one of the, th the things, maybe I don't know whether you mentioned it or not, but, and maybe it is in the book, uh, is regarding the risk that they will take, even mm. if it's um, to a such an extreme ex extent that they will be they will want to do what you know what their peers are doing and not listen to their parents. So just the social brain and the and the risks that they would take, which could even be quite drastic. So just mm. wanted to see if you could maybe explain a little bit about that. Yeah, the um, I say the part of the brain which, is, which evaluates risk and controls impulses is not as fully formed as it will be when you're full adult. So you know, adults kind of make more sensible slash boring decisions. And they can be more, slightly more self-controlled. Not always. Again, everyone's different. And sometimes you get people who act out a bit and vote to leave certain things and so on. And that is, so it, it's a common thing. But with it, that part of your brain when you're a teenager isn't as fully formed yet. It, again, it does work. I think I've, I, I, think I try to emphasize a lot in the book is that I keep saying not fully formed. It's working. It, it's still doing its job. It just, it's harder for it to do the job compared to how it, how powerful it'll be when it's fully matured. So it's still it's a work in progress, but it's still operating. It's still doing what it's supposed to be doing, just not as effectively as it otherwise could. So teens can do all things. They can exercise independent thought and self-control. They do it all the time. Like most teenagers will sit in a lesson they're not, not interested in. They'll just run up, just, just jump up and start screaming and run around. Well, some do. In my school, they especially did. But <clears throat> but they can do this sort of thing. So. But the, the allure of something novel, like the brain loves novelty anyway, and so anything which is novel, like, oh, that, that's, I, I want to do that. That'll be fun, that'll be enjoyable. And especially if, again, as most parents experience, especially if parents tell you you shouldn't do that. So, okay, so that's, that's like, that, my, my individuality has been taken away there, so if I don't do that, I'll do the opposite of that, then I'm asserting my own independence and control. That becomes more tempted, becomes more beguiling. Also, if we, especially with, um, if you're with other teens, part of your peer group, like, so... We could uh, smoke this illicit cigarette. We could uh, hang around a bus stop and talk about stuff for hours, which a lot of kids in my valley used to do. So yeah, it's it's a very common thing. Like things which are familiar, like parents, and things which are restrictive, like rules and boundaries and bedtime hours and stuff. They are actively you know, unpleasant for the typical teenage brain. When it's anything new which offers a sense of control, a sense of novelty, a sense of independence, is automatically more tempting. As a result, teens will do more risky things. No, not always, not, not constantly, but you know, it, it just, it's just like more chance of, of it happening there. So that's essentially what's happening at the most basic level. I mean, individual differences will be tremendous as well, but that's by and large what seems to be the case in, in these, this particular age group. Thank you. Did, oh, yeah. oh, there's a gentleman just there and then a lady over here. Thanks. Yes, uh, thank you. A very simple question, but you, you've been discussing the way uh, teen brains change, but... Does the reverse happen? Do parents' brains change? Because it's a huge undertaking to bring up a child. It's like 25 mm. years long, isn't it? Yes, definitely. <laughs> no, it's, again, the parents' brain is always changing too. Like, it was only until relatively recently that people were thinking the adult brain is literally fixed. I said it's more fixed. I don't, like, it's not completely rigid. That's not actually how a brain works. A rigid brain is essentially a dead brain. It can't change, it can't adapt. That is not how brains do stuff. So the adult brain can definitely, you know, tweak and adapt, it just takes a bit longer because obviously like, the worldview is fixed and it takes more pressure and more time and more exposure to 
change how people think and operate and interact with things. So, which isn't the case for most teens, because they suddenly got, oh, like, new stuff now, let's, let's do this. And the adult's like, oh, no, 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 this is not how things work. I, I've spent 10 years building up this particular relationship in this house, this particular you know, work and life balance and stuff, and you're ruining it. That's another course of stress and tension. But, but yeah, of course, adults will, you know, as soon as a child is born, then they suddenly become, I mean, I say, like, teens are going to have sleep. Parents don't get enough sleep either. I mean, when your child is born, you don't get enough ever again. Maybe that sort of seems to be the general rule of thumb. They have got two myself, and they sleep sometimes. And that's, you know, that's that's the thing which parents will adapt to that because every human being is very adaptable. You can go your whole life and be a completely different person to who you were ten years previous, fifteen years previous. So parents are definitely changing and evolving, and adapting themselves. It just it just takes longer because their brain is more. It's more fixed. Like, so as it, when you're a teenager, like your house, think of it as like a house. Your brain's like a house. Teenage, like you know, the walls are being reconverted. You build an extension. You got you know, the, the whole internal structure's being remodeled. Whereas when you're an adult, that's all done. So you can't change that. But you can redecorate. You can like remove things around. You can install new plugs. So it's it's a bit more smaller scale, but it's uh, <laughs> it still it still look different. And that's um, that's the main thing, I guess. Um, yeah, there's a lady here. Thank you. Um, so I was going to ask, could you explain a little bit about why, so of course I can only talk about um, f the experiences from my own circle, but generally there seems to be this sort of standoff between teenagers where they're like, um, oh, my parents will never understand, or they don't know what I'm really going through. Mm. It could be small scale, big scale. And then there's the parents that... Um, are actually like, oh no, we've been teenagers before. We know exactly what you're going through. <laughs> so you know, why why is there this sort of standoff? Because technically, the parents aren't wrong. They mm. have been teenagers and should know what we've been going through. <laughs> but then again, they are very wrong. So. <laughs> <laughs> and very, very old. Valid. Very very important <laughs> point. A big part of that is, let's say, when you um, I think it's worth mentioning that when they were when your parents were teenagers, it was a different type of world. It was a different place. You no, know, things were different. They were like there was no internet, and that's. That's a huge difference. So, like, and yeah. So, I think also it's very weird for a teenager to think of your parents as being a teenager. So, like, you no, know, you, you want to put your dis distance between you and them. Like, you no, know, we are different. I am cool, and you are not. You, you, you are you are rubbish and old and worn out. You're old and weak. That's a quote from the Lion God. And like, but then, so when your parents try to relate to you, that's sort of it's sort of resisted because, like I said, like you want you want new things. Familiar things are now no longer fun or enjoyable. You want to explore your own, form your own relationship. So that means your parents are like, you know, old news. Like, I need to form bonds with new people and different people, and my parents are obstructing that. So an attempt by them to relate to you is going to be more resisted because, like, no, no, I don't want this. I want new stuff. I, again, not consciously, but subconsciously think, I, I, I know this relationship. I don't like it. I don't want them to be in my life. I want them to sort of be separate because I need to be, do my own stuff now. So any attempt by your parents to relate to you will be hard to sell from them. And like I said, like parents who remember their own teens and childhood, but they don't remember like the actual facts of it all. Well, they remember the basic facts, but like, memory is not the same as uh, no, the actual experience. So, like when you're a teen, you have these really powerful emotional uh, experiences, which you can't really have when you're an adult. You, you can have very intense emotions, but it takes more to get to that point, and they're not as common. And that's one theory as to why you know, every person, every generation so far, seems to think the best music was from their teens. Every, every music journalist like, no, I've been down ill since Stone Roses and stuff like that, which is all it seems to be based on. Like when you're a teenager, you have a far more powerful emotional response to music, whatever it happens to be, 
It's weird to think that in like 20, 30 years' time, there are people saying Ed Sheeran was God, and I was like, that's just embarrassing. And that, that, that is, uh, that's the thing, though, because like, like, oh, well, when I was young, that's what music was, so that's how music works. So anything different is wrong. And that's sort of, you know, so therefore, when you try to explain to someone who was, thinks, was a teenager now, you won't have the same experiences, you won't have the same opinions on stuff. So any attempt to relate will automatically hit that logjam of, like I say, yes, I know you were young and you were a teenager, but you're still wrong because you were a teenager then, I'm a teenager now, and that's the main difference. And like, that's something which, it's, it's kind of hard to get around that, to be honest. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so, yeah. Oh, and there's uh, somebody at the back as well. Thanks. Do you think, in general, there's less conflict between a grandparent and a child relationship than a parent and child? And if so, why? Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I would say that, because uh, if you see lots of memes about that, it's like, parents are the ones who discipline, and grandparents don't have to do that. They did that. Now it's, now it's, now it's fun time. Like, you see that there's a classic image of going around, sort of stick figure going into, going into grandparents' house, leaving grandparents' house round with money. <laughs> I know my mother does that a lot, which I really wish she'd stop. It's... Um, yeah, like it's it's a thing. Like when you're a, a grandparent, like that's that is actually one of the theories why humans live so long because that means grandparents were a thing. So grandparents could then help out with raising the kids when they, they they've gone past the, sort of the fertile phase and the more like active phase, but they're still there and they're still completely you know, functional. So they can help out with kid raising. That's one of the theories as to why humans develop such a long lifespan. Believe it or not, I don't know. So grandparents are for babysitting; otherwise, they'd be dead, which is <laughs> a strange way to look at it. But you know, evolutionary psychology is like that sometimes. It has some very harsh conclusions. But um, yeah, but like it's, it's, it's like sort of like uh, grandparents can afford to be more generous, more. They're not always in their life; they don't see them every single day, unless you have one of those very close families, which some people do. And I think grandparents take a certain a certain illicit pleasure in sort of doting on their grandkids at their parents' expense because obviously <laughs> they went through the hell that they, their parents when they were a teenager and the Rob Williams had a joke about that saying, you raised this child who will one day quit college and you too. <laughs> Your father's back and going, ha, 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 look at you, you lost as well. And that's, you know, that's it, it's, it's a thing. So like, it's a very sort of complex relationship. But yeah, I think because grandparents can afford to be more indulgent or uh, less disciplined than parents towards a child because they, that's just how it works. You know, they are... They're not their parents; they're their grandparents, and therefore, and I think a lot of grandparents or old people are like, well, I want grandchildren now. Come on, like, <laughs> I've lived long enough. Come on, bring them on. And that's you know, that's sort of like there is a sort of there's a different dynamic there essentially. So yes, I think that's definitely the case. Uh, there was a hand at the back. Oh, you got it. Okay, yeah, great. I've got it. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there any research, and if there isn't, do you have an opinion on um, <laughs> the impact of siblings on the neurodevelopment in uh, in, adole in adolescence? Um, yeah, I think there's uh, it's a lot of uh, papers, like a lot of studies on this um, sort of stuff is, a lot of it's based on twin studies, because identical twins, because you know, individual people vary so much. Like if you can have people who have as much in common as possible, then you can see how different things affect them. So like studies where one twin gets depression, the other one doesn't, you think, well, genetics must not be a thing here, or it's less likely to be a thing, because they both have the same genes. And so like, a lot of stuff is on twin things. Um, there's no sort of one consistent effect. I think it depends how your relationship is. Like if you have like a big age gap, then they can have a lot more. Um, it can be like a much easier relationship because you weren't competing for the same stuff as a child, and you have like you know you become sort of more of a surrogate parent and things. Um, whereas if you're very close, closely in age to your siblings, you fight all the time and therefore you become enemies. But then, if you hit adolescence at the same time, it shows that you can have like 
you find refuge in your sibling, like you can agree that mum and dad are a pain and like rubbish, and we can gang up and we can work against them. So it, it, again, it there is it does have a big effect, but it can also vary tremendously based on how well, what the age difference is, what the sex difference is, what the uh, what's the what the dynamic is? Because like I've got a younger sister who was a nightmare growing up, and she I, you can quote me on that because my parents tell me that as well. But now I've got my parents are divorced, so I've got two younger siblings. Like my younger brother is 18 years younger than me, my sister is 19 years younger than me, and so I was like 18 when my brother was born, and they, they kept making me sort of look after him and change his nappies and stuff. They kept saying, "Oh, I have to do it yourself one day." So all the more reason not to do it now. Then it was like, <laughs> "This is my youth, not yours. I'm not, I'm not free free labour here." So. So yeah, like it, it, there's no real sort of one thing to say about that. So a sibling can have a big effect, but the effect it can have can vary tremendously. Do we have, I think we've got time for one more. Yes, yeah, so someone at the back, thank you. Thank you. Hello? Oh, thank Hi. You. Um, what would be the best way to respond to my 15-year-old niece who has recently spoke about drinking drugs and boys? Um, do I take the role of the parent or do I just let her be? Um, that, again, that depends on how your relationship is anyway. Like if you're the cool aunt, then... Um, I mean, the tempt is to say let her be, she needs to find these things out by herself. But if you're like the one who she confides in because you're not her parent but you are still family, then you could do a sort of... Yeah, you know, maybe coax her away from that sort of thing. Um, if you're like sort of more of a... Sort of, if you're like more solid with your... your your sibling and like you're more you're seen as a parent then trying to intervene could then you know, it's like a reverse psychology thing because you tell me not to I want to do it more and um, again, that's really down to like, what your relationship is like but it can help coming from someone who's like more distant from the parent if they want to give some good advice like that's why I sort of like to write this sort of stuff because I'm I'm not related to the reader or the, the teenage reader so like and so you can you can listen to me because I'm just a random bloke you know I'm not trying to control your life I'm just telling you stuff and that can sometimes be more helpful like when it's like when you're like if you have mental health problems it's sometimes easier which is why online communities can be so powerful to talk to a complete stranger because there's no pre-existing relationship there's no judgment there there's just I'm interested in this I'm thinking about this you don't know anything about me but what do you think and that that can be quite helpful because there's no sort of you know you tell your parents then there's so much weight and baggage behind the relationship which you could be disrupting and undermining as a complete stranger, there's no sort of stakes there. So, again, I know you're not a complete stranger, but it, it depends on your relationship. But if you have a sort of more relaxed relationship, then it could be helpful to say, gently say, yeah, not, not the best approach. But, again, it's really up to you and how you guys function as a unit. So we have, do we have one last one? Yeah, there's somebody just there at the back. Um, and then we'll... So yeah. regarding the um, persona like personas like, with different mm -hmm. people... There's a really great, um, good quote, and it's, um, I'm not what I think I am. I'm not what you think I am. I am what I think you think I am. <laughs> and I think this is quite a good quote because um, an important thing to consider because you were talking about how um, we are different um, to amongst different people. Mm. And um, this, um, I think, is very important to be true to yourself, as we all know, and also um, mature, as we're, especially during adolescence, we're also maturing and... Um, Finding ourselves, uh -huh. why is there like a, like almost, why is there a need to cha um, radically change personality? Because, um, um, like, it could be sometimes it can be, um, let's say, oh, sorry, um, 
Was, it, was that the question? Why, why do we need to yeah. change personas with yeah. different yeah. groups? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, we sort of, so much of how we see ourselves, see of the world is, is so much it's calibrated against other people. Like we have social emotions, the emotion of guilt, embarrassment. These make no sense if other people aren't around us. So, so much of what our, our brain works is based on other people accepting and liking us. It's actually one of the main theories as to why we have such big advanced brains. The, uh, there's an environmental dominance, ecolo ecological dominance, social competition theory whereby human tribes became so successful that the normal drivers of evolution stopped having an effect. So like if you're born to a human tribe in the, in, on the savannah, don't have to worry about predators, tribe gets rid of those, don't worry about food, tribe feeds you. No, you haven't got to be like big and strong or fast or have claws or teeth or anything. So the evolutionary selective processes didn't work anymore. What happened more was being social. Like, like well, if, I'm, if the tribe likes me the most, then I'm going to be more successful and be able to mate more and spread my genes. So things like being the most friendly, being able to maintain the most relationships, being best able to control people, all of which requires more intelligence, which is why we've got such massive brains. So the brain's an incredibly social organ anyway. So the people around us have a much more deep and instinctive effect than you might think, because that's how we sort of calibrate the world, our worldviews. Like everyone around me thinks this is true, so I guess I better either pretend it's true or convince myself it is true, otherwise I'm going to be rejected. And that's, to the, to the human brain, that is almost like a fake worse than death. But so if you're, if you're around different groups, there will have different people, like this group wants me to be like this, so okay, I better do that, otherwise I'm going to be rejected. This group wants me to be like this, I'm going to be rejected if I don't do that. Because um, the brain's a very diverse organ, we can maintain several different types of persona, and like, it can go obviously quite wrong with dissociative personality disorder. You can have full-on separate identities in the same head because the brain is that diverse. But yeah, it's, it's a genuinely evolved thing. Like We depend on other people for our existence as far as we, on a, on a sort of cognitive and survival level. So other people will have these pronounced and profound effects on us, which make us change our just demeanor to, to, to get in with them. So yes, wait, that wasn't the yes no question, but yes, but nonetheless, I stand by it. Well, look, we've got to wrap it up now. Thank you so much, Dean. That was fantastic. Dean is going to be signing books outside um, on the table out there. It, I can um, tell you from experience, this is a fantastic book if you have teenage children, if you are a teenager. It also still works if your parents are driving you up the wall in your 40s, which <laughs> applies to quite a lot of people. Um, I would imagine you can still use the same skill set. Uh, so um, do go and grab your copy and, and get Dean to sign it. And uh, Dean, thank you very Thanks much. Thanks so much. Thanks thank for you. coming. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash bookshambles to support the podcast and the Cosmic Shambles Network. Head to cosmicshambles.com to check out all our blogs and podcasts and upcoming events. Dean's book, Dean's new book and his old books as well, all available now from various online retailers and independent bookshops. We always recommend you uh, check out hive.co.uk if you're shopping for books online. Really great prices and uh, a percentage of your purchase goes to an independent bookshop of your choice. We're not sponsored by Hive. We don't get any uh, kickback by recommending Hive. We just recommend Hive because you support, you should support your local independent bookshop. So go there and get Dean's book if you've not already. Thanks for listening. Once again, we'll be back with a new episode next week. Until then, have a great week. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.